I love that idea. Even within uh, cancer, I love the idea of the sum of small joys in everyday life because it moves it right into where we spend most of our time. We all have the peaks where, I mean, I could say the work I do, the work I did at Wellspring, the work I do now is absolutely part of my ikigai. There's no question, but it has nothing to do with career or money for me. I love what I do. And I also love caring for my grandchildren, as you know, because you've read my book. And I love poetry, things that, you know, lift my spirits and give me strength and courage and bring joy to my heart. I have so many of those things. And so that's for me is Ikigai. This is Nick Kemp with the Ikigai podcast. Japanese wisdom for a fulfilling and meaningful life. Find your Ikigai at ikigaitribe.com. This is Nick Kemp with episode 39 of the Ikigai podcast, and my guest today is Trudy Boyle. Trudy, currently you are the director of the Todo Institute Initiative on Living Fully with Illness and serve a broad digital community of people living with illness through weekly webinars, blog posts, online and residential programs, and as a regular contributor to the 30,000 days quarterly. Formerly, you were the program director of Wellspring Calgary in Canada, and you continue to play an active role in the Wellspring community. And I know you have two wonderful grandchildren that play a very meaningful role in your life. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Trudy. Thank you, Nick. I'm honestly honored to be here. Likewise. And we have quite a lot to talk about and I think a really significant and important subject. But what I discovered is we're connected through quite a few people. Uh, One is Greg Creech of the Todol Institute. And I interviewed Greg on episode nine. And also through one of my Ikigai Tribe community members, Carly Taylor. And it was actually Carly who suggested I reach out to you so we can thank Carly for us getting together on this podcast. Thank you, Carly. (laughs) So you wrote the book, which you refer to as a booklet, Ikigai and Illness, A Guide to Living Fully with Purpose, Meaning and Joyful Moments. And one of the main themes of the book is cancer and how to coexist with cancer and other illnesses and still live a meaningful life, a life filled with ikigai. And you describe your book as an invitation to sit together for a while and examine a perspective on how we can coexist with illness and all the uncertainty that accompanies it. And you wrote the book not only for people with illness, but also for the unpaid caregivers, spouses, and and family members and friends who also go through that often painful journey. And I really wasn't sure where to start the podcast today, whether we start with Ikigai or cancer or illness, but it it seemed appropriate for a few reasons that maybe we start with (laughs) that uh, horrible C word, cancer. So would you like to share your personal experience with cancer? I'd be happy to. Thank you. I was in an interesting position, Nick, because I was working 
facilitating a program for cancer patients and talking about ikigai and illness. I called it living well with illness, living fully with illness. I had a few different names, but it was always, from my point of view, I'm passing on this information that I thought was so useful and helpful. And then out of the blue, on January 18th, 2008, I got diagnosed with cancer. And I was shocked because I come from a family of long living people, living to be 100 and healthy with no cancer that I knew of in my family. So I thought I might get heart disease, but it never occurred to me that I would get cancer. The coincidence of the day I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed on the phone and my lunch hour, is that I had hired consultants from Toronto to come to Calgary, where I was the program director at Wellspring Calgary, to train trainers to facilitate a particular program called the Healing Journey that Dr. Alistair Cunningham had created well back in the 80s. And the head trainer asked if I would please sit in on the training so that I would know exactly what was going on and also so that I would be able to hire the people that probably would be the best fit for the first round of this training. That's how I came to be at the training. And on that day, just before lunch, we were all invited to do an exercise, to visualize, to make a drawing, in fact, of what we had inside that would give us strength to deal with illness. So I thought, well, I really am not ill. I don't get ill. I had a car accident when I was in my 20s. But, and so I thought, I'll just go do my work upstairs. And then I thought, no, no, I, I want to cooperate here and do the best I can. So I thought, well, I've had lots of troubles like everybody else in the world. Mm-hmm. I had other things. So what is it that I call on? And uh, at that very moment, this little ter- expression came into my head that was, well, you are not alone. And I thought back to my car accident, waking up, being rescued by the jaws of life, being an emergency, broken bones. And I had all these wonderful medical people around me who kept me alive and helped me to get well. And so I pictured that at any time of crisis or difficulty, there were always helping hands, professional and otherwise. So I failed art in grade one, but I thought I could draw a boat. So I drew this boat, (laughs) colored it red and uh, like a rowboat. And I put a little sail on it and I filled it with stick figures. All these people that throughout my life had been so helpful to me. And I drew the sun and I drew the clouds and the storm clouds. And I thought, well, you know, it's the river of life and whatever happens, I'm not alone. There's always people there to help me. And feeling kind of smug that I actually did do this, I kind of skipped out of that boardroom, went upstairs, had a message to call my doctor, which I did. And he told me at that moment that I had cancer. And I couldn't believe it. Not only that, I couldn't understand I could be possibly diagnosed without a biopsy. I'd had a mammogram and an ultrasound. And that weekend, it was Friday. And so that weekend, after I kind of got over my shock, wrote my obituary in my head and did all the things that people do. I took on the job of trying to discover how did they know I had cancer without a biopsy? So that's how it happened. Wow. Yes. It's it almost suggests that somehow there was some intuition suggesting 
you've got some news and it, it might not be <laughs> good. I actually can say I sort of share a similar experience. I was misdiagnosed with cancer um, and I, I actually had a, a needle biopsy and was sort of told, you know, it is cancer. And I lived for three months um, thinking, gee, I've, I've got cancer. And I did have a very large tumour, which thankfully was benign in my leg. Mm-hmm. But, I, yeah, I remember that day and it was just surreal. And I remember going for a long walk and everything around me just seemed to be slow motion. And I seemed to have this heightened sense of awareness. And I thought, uh, this was sort of in my late 20s, and I thought, you know, life's just begun and that fear of death, uncertainty, which we'll all talk about. So, yeah, it's quite an experience being told you, you have cancer and thankfully mine was a, a misdiagnosis and you're you're still with us. So that's, that's a wonderful thing. I'm still here. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> 14 years later. So thank thank you for sharing that. I shared with you that both my parents um, died from cancer and I, yeah, I wish I had the opportunity to have read your book before they both died. And I'd like to quote from your book, from the preface, and it reads, I'm going to give you a gentle nudge to resist this inclination and push back against the inertia that wants to take over. I'd like to offer you an opportunity to see the world through a new lens a lens that takes in all the pain and suffering you're dealing with, but still allows you to spot the moments of beauty, kindness, joy, and meaning. And I think that's a, a wonderful way to, to start your book. And I, I found that um, very meaningful, I guess, in relation to my experience with my parents. Thank you, Nick. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So One way to get this new lens that you write about is through an active, meaningful set of guidelines and learnable skills that you mentioned was originally developed by a Japanese physician, Dr. Jinro Itami. And I'd like to quote Itami-sensei or Dr. Itami. Even though I am ill, I will not live like a sick person. And that's, that's very powerful. So would you like to talk about Dr. Itami and how you came to work with him? I would love to talk about (laughs) Dr. Itami. So I was introduced to Dr. Itami's work in 1991. And at the time, I was living on Vancouver Island and in a new relationship. And we were getting ready to take a trip around the world, which sounds pretty amazing. Mm. And it was going to be amazing. However. Just 10 days before we left, a friend gave me a book called Playing Ball on Running Water. So I instantly loved the title. It was written by Dr. David K. Reynolds, an American anthropologist. And my friend got that book because she was taking a course doing her master's uh, in counseling. They had a visiting professor, Dr. Ishu Ishiyama, who was at UBC, and he was teaching Morita therapy. Nikon therapy. Mm. And uh, because I had kind of a lot of complaints about Western therapy at that time, my friend said, I finally found something you will like. And that was Morita therapy. And of course I did. I never heard of it. I loved it instantly. I thought, finally, something that makes sense to me. 
So I called David Reynolds. I looked, that was in the days when you called an operator to get a phone number. And he lived in Portland, Oregon. I called, or not Portland, but he was in Oregon. And I called him and he answered. And I said, do you ever do any training in this? He said, well, I do. He said, I'm doing a certification training. He said, in 10 days in Washington and Virginia. I said, well, can I register two people? He said, well, you'll need to make an application and send it to Greg Creech because he's co-facilitating that training and organizing it. So I did. So the first 10 days of our trip around the world was spent in a hot, humid, dusty old farmhouse in Virginia <laughs> with, with a wasp's nest outside the window with humidity that I had never experienced before and taking this program with David Reynolds. And it was during that time that I learned about what in Japan is called Ikigai Ryoho, and in English was roughly translated as meaningful life therapy. And it was designed by Dr. Uh, Jinro Itami for metastatic cancer patients. That's who he designed it for. And he did this in the early 80s. So he was really a visionary and an mm. early adopter of uh, psychosocial interventions along with regular treatment. And um, I literally, it was like, I, I loved the word Ikigai. I loved the whole idea of what he was doing with cancer patients. And at that time, he became quite famous in a way for taking a group of cancer patients who got ready over two years to climb Mont Blanc. And they went with doctors and nurses and helpers. And you have to think that at that time in Japan, a lot of people who had cancer weren't even told they had cancer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a unique cultural. <laughs> it, it was, aspect. it wasn't even brought up. Not only did he tell people they had cancer, he wanted them to do things and stretch themselves and, and find reasons to stay alive. So he had this mantra even though I'm ill, I won't live like a sick person. And that was not about denial. It's not pretending you don't have cancer. But what it really meant was not allowing cancer to dominate your entire life. And Nick, it really can. When you get diagnosed with cancer, your calendar is filled with appointments of PET scans, CAT scans, you know, surgeries, chemo, radiation, you name it your life becomes a little bit out of your control. And it's very, very easy to kind of put your life on hold until somehow you get through all of this. So that's how I first met him and his work. I didn't actually physically meet him again until uh, around 2007 at UBC at a big Morita International Congress. And he was there and his cousin was his main translator uh, Yoshie, and she and I became fast friends very quickly. And so then she would often, over the years, I've learned Dr. Itami doesn't speak English and I don't speak Japanese beyond a few words, but I learned so much more through her. And there, because there was very little to read in English. I also took a program, a course from Dr. Ishiyama myself at UBC later on on cross cultural counseling a critical analysis, and this was included in that. 
I'm going to stop talking because I could spend the whole hour just telling you about that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all right. I mean, you've, you've mentioned a few things that really, well, one that really shocked me was when I discovered that often in Japan, the patient is not told of their yes. disease and it's, it's told to the family and the family will make the decision whether or not to tell the patient. And often they don't. And I could not believe that um, a family would hold back this information. And I'm sure at some stage the patient would know they're sick and dying and they would have to pretend that it's all not happening. So that's quite a radically, I mean, that's sort of a radical approach that he's taking. It was taking very radical, yeah. For Japan. And also, yeah, Morita therapy, that's an area of interest. And I, I do love that therapy. And one of my favorite words is arugamama. And Me too. <laughs> we could probably do a, a podcast <laughs> just on that one word. So, so speaking of words, this amazing word, ikigai, were you first introduced to the word through your association with Dr. Itami and, and the work you were doing? I first encountered the word because of Dr. David Reynolds, okay. who during that 10-day intensive training did a session on meaningful life therapy. And that's when I first encountered the word. I'd never heard that word before. And in the public realm, I didn't hear the word again outside of the work with Dr. Itami until I was at a medical conference in, at University of Calgary was on medicine and spirituality. And the keynote speaker talked about uh, Dan Boitner's work on the five okay. blue zones. And Ikigai was a big part of that. I see. Yeah, it's sort of evolved into um, several different meanings and it's become a little bit um, romanticized. But I do love this angle on how it can help you live a very meaningful, purposeful, joyful life, even if you're ill. So when you're talking about Ikigai and you're asked what the word means, how do you define it? Well, I usually start by splitting up the word Iki and Gai and saying that Iki really means kind of to live. And Gai is about meaning, values, purpose. I often use the word purpose, but I love the the idea that Ikigai is the sum of small joys in everyday life. That's really my favorite. And a reason to get up in the morning and things that lift your spirits and bring a smile to your face, things that you love. I get a little bit cranky with the Venn diagram, and I was delighted to see on your <laughs> website you have it with a line through it. I thought, oh, my gosh, like I've never seen anyone do this. And uh, and it's fine for business to co-opt that if they want. I just wish they wouldn't call it Ikigai because it's not Ikigai in the <laughs> traditional sense, right? So I love that idea. Even within uh, cancer, I love the idea of the sum of small joys in everyday life because it moves it right into where we spend most of our time. Mm. We all have the peaks where... I mean, I could say the work I do, the work I did at Wellspring, the work I do now is absolutely part of my ikigai. There's no question, but it has nothing to do with career or money for me. I love what I do. And I also love caring for my grandchildren. 
as you know, because you've read my book. And I love poetry, things that, you know, lift my spirits and give me strength and courage and bring joy to my heart. I have so many of those things. And so that's for me is Ikigai. It's discovering some purpose. What are your little purposes? And I'm going to do, I'm going to go off track just for a second to say this, that in this training that I do, in this work that I do, we look at not big life purposes. It's not that Ikigai can't do that. But when it comes to illness, we look at present day, we stick to the present day, present moment. And we look at what are the small purposes that are important to you that you can do right now with things as they are, not when you get better. Now that does resonate. And I, I'm like you, I, I think I favor that approach of small joys. And it's, it's something Ken Moggy, who's an author and uh, a neuroscientist talks about the, the joy of little things and mm-hmm. to, to be in the here and now. And typically in the West, we, <laughs> we sort of appropriate cultural concepts and either romanticize them or have some delusion that they're a, you know, a big goal to achieve and it's driven by ec- extrinsic or external factors. And Ikigai really is the opposite of that. It's the joy of small things. It, it can be the pursuit of life-defining goals. But again, in the context of what you're doing, not, not so much the achievement mm-hmm. of one big life goal. So it, it's, yeah, it's interesting how concepts get misunderstood and become popular sort of for the wrong reasons. And that's definitely what happened to Ikigai. And like you, <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Venn diagram. So let's let's move on to your book, and I'd like to touch on each chapter. All right. So I thought we could do that. And again, the title of the book is Ikigai and Illness, A Guide to Living Fully with Purpose, Meaning, and Joyful Moments. So let's have a look at Chapter 1. And okay. There, there really are call to actions on how to, I guess, live with Ikigai. So the title of Chapter 1 is play an active role in the management of your illness. And I have a question for you. Why should people diagnosed with life-threatening illness do this? And I have a lot of answers. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the answers is you are the person most interested in getting well if you have a life-threatening illness. There is no question, right? You're it. Mm. And The reality of it is, is that when you're diagnosed with a serious illness, you're going to end up needing to make a lot of decisions and a lot of choices. That was a real surprise to me when I had cancer, that I had to decide, would I have this procedure or that procedure? Would I have this chemo or that? I was presented, you know, with with the stats on all of this, but it was still my decision. And so... One of the things that, and the science backs this up in the research too, is that people who will really play an active role in their own illness, who will do some research or get help with the research, learn about their cancer, learn about their treatments, can ask questions when they see their doctor, and who will, for instance, always take someone to an appointment who can ask if they would record the meeting so that they can go over it later. 
Because as you know and can imagine, when we have a serious illness at stake and we've got treatment, see, the the odd thing about cancer is you often feel very good when you're diagnosed. And all of a sudden, you're going to take treatment that makes you feel extremely sick. So there's a, there's a, it's an oxymoron kind of thing. It's a conundrum, but we need to know the more we can know, we need the experts, but the more knowledge that we can bring to the table as the lay person with this treatment, we start to gain some respect with our medical team. They start to trust us. We actually can do many things, Nick, besides the medical treatment. And that's really where living well with illness comes in, because these are all non-medical interventions of things we can do. Even the basics, sleeping and eating and exercising. For years, you did not exercise when you had either heart disease or cancer. Now, people have exercise programs from day one, right? And right through chemotherapy. It's amazing what happens when you do those things. And also, I think that you need to be able to ask for help. When you get a serious illness, it's not the time to be a stoic. It's not the time to be a victim, but it's not the time to be a stoic. When you need help, you ask for help. And there's so many things that that you can do. And part of living well with illness really takes into consideration those kinds of things, which we'll talk about, but creative aspects and stretching yourselves and doing things that you may not normally have thought of doing. But the big push is this. You want to move away from putting your life on hold to actually playing an active role, not just in your own treatment, but in your own life. What are things that you can do here while you have the chance? and take advantage of those. May I say one thing before we go on? Sure, sure. I I just want to clarify for any of your listeners that this is not a prescription and it's not a formula. Mm. I really don't like either of those things. It really is kind of a set of guidelines that include five guidelines, humor therapy, visualization, and direct experience, learning through experience, where you as the person with cancer can learn some skills that you can use yourself to better go through this illness, to find all these moments of purpose and joy, even while you coexist with the illness. And in many cases, you can learn things with your ikigai. When you have your ikigai and you become familiar with that, it will be with you for the rest of your life. So it's not just for why you have cancer. Hey there, Nick Kemp here, and I wanted to touch base and let you know about my new course, the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. If you are interested in learning more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com. Now back to the episode. I agree totally. And this does remind me of my experience and my brother's experience of playing an active role in, in helping my mother with her cancer 
And at the time, my mother was very sick with cancer and sort of in her last months, that's when I was diagnosed or misdiagnosed with cancer. And I had this awful decision to make. I I did not want her to think I had cancer. Um, So I had to basically lie to her every time I was leaving the house because I was like you, I was getting all these CT scans and tests and seeing doctors and they're saying, Nick, we've got to remove this tumour, we need to get it done quickly. And they were either saying we've, we've got surgery or radiation. And I'm saying there's no way I'm doing this now. I'm not letting my mother think I have cancer while she's, you know, clearly she was going to yes. die, die with it. So I had to, yeah, play this active role. And then once I made that decision, I mean, I think I, I remember calling the doctor and basically asked for help in, in the form of, I'm not going to do this, so can we delay? Can we delay it for a couple of months? Which probably yeah, he was a bit um, uncomfortable about, but he understood because he was a, a, actually a good family friend. And, you know, in the end it all worked out. I, I didn't have cancer. But then, yeah, my brother and I had to, played an active role in helping my mum in her last months and doing that really helped rather than letting other people do things or um, sort of running away from it. I think we sort of embraced, you know, we're, we're both her sons, we love her and we'll, we'll do what we can. And that did, even though it was extremely uncomfortable and painful, I think it, it helped us face the reality of the situation and deal with it in a, a loving and caring way as, as sons. So I, I agree taking an active role, I think in, in anything is mm-hmm. sort of the best way to, to handle your life, but it is. especially illness. So I do like this, this idea of moving from, I guess, a passive role, which most people probably assume is what you take when you are exactly. sick or ill to an active role, and to quote from your book, uh, never underestimate the impact that small steady steps can make. Those small steps can take us a long way. And I, I think that's true with all things in life. So that's... Um, it's a bit of a Kaizen, right? Yeah, <laughs> a bit of a... Yeah, that's right, the Kaizen. Approach. Principle. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, uh, it helps. And I, I think that you know, so often people look at, like sometimes what happens is that there are people who go through cancer and do amazing things. They're really kind of action figures and they're amazing. And sometimes people who are in my workshops will say, you know, but I, I don't know how they do it. Like I could never be going through pancreatic cancer, having treatment and doing an iron woman. And I would say, did you ever want to do this before you had cancer? And she said, well, no. I said, Mm. well, why would you think you would need to do this now, right? So we need to pay attention ourselves to a lot of the time, the culture kind of imposes what you should do when you get cancer. You should eat this and you shouldn't eat that and you should do this and you should do yoga even if it makes you dizzy. And I'm not against any of that. I'm all for healthy lifestyle. But at the same time, you need to pay attention to your own blueprint, 
who you are and do the things that really are helpful and useful to you Hmm. and not just what the report says needs to be done. We all know that we're the one person who knows ourselves best. And so I think if we listen to our intuition and follow our values um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, take in advice and process it, but always come back to a decision we're comfortable with, it's it's probably the, the best way to handle any situation. Even the fact that if you pay attention, you will know that. But if you're kind of just in a fog and not noticing and just doing what people say, I'll tell you one quick story of a woman who was in one of my workshops, and I'm free to tell this story. She uh, had said during this workshop, you know, I really have to say that I don't like yoga and I don't like yoga music. And I feel like now I have to do this. I have to do this because I have cancer. And I said, well, what kind of music do you like? And she said, I like heavy metal. So I said, when you go home today, why don't you sit down and play heavy metal and have a glass of red wine if you want, right? (laughs) And so she wrote to me and she said, I just had that glass of red wine and banged out heavy metal on my piano and I haven't felt so good in months. So you see, (laughs) this is the tricky, that's a slippery slope when we see these are sort of the things you should do because you have cancer. They don't suit you at all. We have our medical treatments, but we have a lot of leeway in the non-medical areas of what works for me or you or someone else. And I encourage people to pay attention to that and to do more of those things that really do lift your spirits. Mm. Well, this definitely relates to your second chapter, which is set immediate life goals and devote time to doing something meaningful and purposeful every day, which could be, yeah, listening to heavy, heavy metal while having a glass of uh, red wine. wine. <laughs> yeah, so I might do that. I'd probably have a beer though. <laughs> yes. But let's move on to another friend of yours, um, John, who you yes. write about in your book and his ikigai and his, his experience. So would you like to talk about John? I would love to. John Stafur is one of my most favorite people in the world, a friend, a colleague. He was someone who was diagnosed with a very, very difficult cancer, given one year to live and lived for 11 years. And uh, he learned about Ikigai and he learned about living well with illness through a workshop that I did in the year 2000. And uh, he then was determined that he wanted to, and this is a, this is post-treatment. He was finished treatment. So post-treatment, he determined that his ikigai was to set up a center in Calgary, Canada, for people who were impacted by cancer, for people who had cancer, for their caregivers, for their friends, where they would have all the resources of the kinds of things that Dr. Itami recommended, and it would all be for free. This was what he wanted to do while he was still alive. And by 2007, that center actually opened up in a rented facility and along with two other founders of Wellspring Calgary. And two years later, we had uh, a new building, which was donated. A big developing company for their 50th anniversary decided 
to thank Calgarians by building them a wellspring. And it was called Karma House, but not the karma that you're thinking of, karma with the C, that was their name, Karma House. And uh, this is the bittersweet part. John went into the hospital the day before the opening of the house. He never got to see the inside of that house because he wanted to wait for the members, for the people who would use it. He wanted to go in with them, but it was done. And so John, while he was alive during those times, devoted himself to Wellspring and he devoted himself in the summer to golf. So he had blue sky, sunshine, no meetings that day. He was on the golf course, but he kind of devised what he called the four F's. And the four F's were uh, faith, family, friends, and fun. So those were the areas of his ikigai. And he really lived fully, Nick. He just did everything he could and loved every minute of it. He went to Japan He and met, he spent a month in Japan and traveled with a translator with Dr. Itami and, and went to meaningful life therapy meetings, sort of immersed himself in that and was so supportive of my teaching this program the minute that Wellspring opened. And so I did that. I very quickly within the first couple of months became the program director and I taught this program with John. So we got to do it together up until the time that uh, he died. And then I needed to take a couple of years from teaching that before I took it up again. But uh, he was a, a purposeful man and generous and wholeheartedly devoted himself. He did not want people to go through cancer in the way he did. So his kind of mantra was, no one need face cancer alone. And that is a vision statement of Wellspring Calgary. And what a, a legacy he's he's left behind. And He's incredible. Yeah, so very, very inspiring. And I love some of the inspiring questions you shared in your book that he asked himself. Would you like to share a few? I, I would. And I use these questions when I do a workshop with people. I uh, I ask that I talk about ikigai, and I'll in this this uh, number two guideline, and I'll talk about like, well, what matters most, and have people take time to reflect on that. Or in the introduction, as people introduce themselves, I'll say, could you tell us one thing, one or two things that lift your spirits? I don't call it ikigai then. I just say, what lifts your spirits? People always have things. And then I say, and how often do you do this thing, right? Maybe it was a, maybe it's a guy and he loved fly fishing. That lifts his spirits. And when I say, when's the last time you were fly fishing? It might've been five years ago. So part of why I say ikigai is a call to action, Nick, is mm -hmm. that it's one thing to kind of, no, oh, I love to paint, right? This fills me up. I love gardening. I love to be in nature. I love hiking. But when you think, answer the second question, when's the last time you did it? There's often a huge gap. Yes, yes. And so cancer, when you get cancer diagnosis, any serious illness, but there's something about cancer that seems to really amplify this. 
it gives you a chance to reevaluate your life. And the what matters most, that can be big and little things. But oftentimes, people make some significant changes. What I'm working with are, well, I always want to remind people, when you're thinking about what matters most right now, right today, I don't want it to be something that you will do after you're better, after treatment is done. I want you to look at some of the smaller things. What can you actually do right now with things as they are? What's something important? And they're smaller things, but they're things that, because it's too, then you just wait. If you have to wait till you're better, it doesn't work. And so if you're going to live fully, you need to have something that you do every single day. So those first two guidelines, doing something to be active, this is something that you do every day. What, what can I learn here? What is there something that I can do or change? Or uh, maybe it's some acupuncture that will help with my nausea, right? There's all these things. And this ikigai, this purpose, these small purposes, you do this every single day. It's not just once a week. Could be five minutes, but you do it every day. And that's the question. What can I do today, right now? You write about that saying that's essentially your practical application of Ikigai was what is doable in the here and now. And to quote you again, I didn't want to put my life on hold waiting to get healthy again. And I think people do this healthy or unhealthy. We we put our life on hold thinking, well, I've got to get this done first or that done first. And, you know, I haven't earned it or, you know, we make all these excuses for us to enjoy life or to do things that matter most or to lift our spirits. And we, we, we should lift our spirits every morning or every day. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> so it's something we can definitely apply whether we're, we're healthy or, or sick. And it goes back to this, yeah, this practical application, which I really like in your book. And it doesn't have to be some big goal we have to achieve. It can be, it certainly can be the pursuit of a life-defining goal where there's obviously many small steps and that's, it's, it's in the action. And that's why I mentioned uh, before we started recording, I love your expression, Ikigai is a call to action. Just, I just love that. So, and again, that's, that's something Ken Moggy talks about. He says, Ikigai is very proactive, meaning, mm-hmm. yeah, you have to take action. And it he relates it to the release of dopamine. You know, if you do yes. something, there'll be a dopamine release and it's like a reward. So we could talk about uh, so many things. <laughs> so we'll, we'll move on, I think. We, we might move on to Chapter 3. Okay. And this one, I think, is extremely important because we can often become the victim when we're diagnosed with an illness, when tragedy strikes, and your chapter title is Do Something for the Benefit and Well-Being of Others. And to quote the Dalai Lama, who you quote in your book, uh, when I think he was asked by someone, you know, what should you do when you're sick or you receive bad news or you think, you know, you're going through a really hard time. <laughs> he says, 
find someone worse off than you and help them. <laughs> so this is this is probably the advice, the last piece of advice you'd want to hear. But it's it's very powerful. So why at a time when we're struggling with illness, are we advised or should we turn our attention to others? You know, I'm just going to slip this in, and you may <laughs> not agree uh, with me, but when I've been, there's so little opportunity for me to really read in English about Ikigai and the original idea, but what I've gleaned is that Ikigai goes beyond just what lifts my spirits. Yeah, yeah. It's also something about how we contribute, Right how the impact that we have on other people in our community and and how we can leave something to be helpful for others. And I, I when I think of this third guideline, I still think of it as having real ikigai impact because we're now looking at, I'm miserable, I'm sick, I'm having all of these things done to me and for me. And I'm being asked every day, to do something for somebody else. And it's not, there's not a list out there of what you should be doing. You make up your own list. You get to decide. Maybe you could write a thank you letter to your neighbor who's look, looking after your dog or your lawn, or maybe you could call someone and who's also going through a bad time and not talk about yourself, but ask about them. Because one of the things when you have cancer, especially your caregiver can be suffering from other things, but you've got cancer. And so yeah. they can't really mention what's going on for you. Just like you didn't want to mention that you had cancer to your mother. It's perfectly understandable. So one of the things with that Dr. Itami would say is that you do whatever you can do. If the only thing you can do this day is to actually Make a cup of tea for someone you're living with. You do that, right? Mm. Or if the only thing you can do is have a like just a five-minute conversation with somebody, that's fine. You don't have to do big things. They can be little. And there's many, just a thank you sometime, just a recognition of what it went through. I know that because of my uh, spouse, who was my caregiver. And, you know, there were many things I could do and didn't always do. And I know that it makes a difference to be able to do that. Not only that, it gives you a modicum of control in your life too, because we're now at the mercy of all these tests and all this receiving. We're receiving help every single day, even if we don't notice it. And so to take an active role in doing something for others, we're executing some control over our own behavior. And you know what? We feel better. Yeah. The science shows that, right? It's why volunteers do better because when we help other people, it helps us. Now, I, I totally agree with you. And this is an area I, I touch on is Ikigai is tied to contribution mm-hmm. and, and helping others. And it, it's tied to our roles. So we have multiple roles. So you have a role of uh, being a grandmother and mm-hmm. obviously a mother and an ambassador for the work you do and an ambassador for Ikigai. And those roles don't stop just because we get sick or something uh, bad mm-hmm. happens. And then from those roles and the um, contribution we make to others, we, we have that sense of significance 
that life is meaningful, but also our life and what we're doing is meaningful. And so, yeah, it's that's an important aspect. Ikigai is very much tied to your relationship with other people. It's it's not just about yourself. And I, I think for me, intimacy is the, the the benefit of being proactive with your ikigai. And you can have many types of intimacy. You have emotional, intellectual, mm-hmm. um, obviously physical, but spiritual. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when you connect to others and you contribute, you have this intimacy and it's a, a beautiful feeling to have. Like we're, we're sort of having this intellectual intimacy. We're discussing a subject that's very meaningful to the both of us. And I'm sure we'll look back on this conversation with much joy. So, yeah, contributing, I agree totally, is one way to get through hard times. Yeah, it, uh, and I'll just tell you, I had the sweetest little Mother's Day note from my 12, my grandson who just turned 12 on Monday. And on Sunday, how he finished off his note to me, which is a treasure, he said, Nana, I really know that you help people get up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Well, there you go. Gee. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, right? Like, how he's picked this up, or sometimes he reads my blog or whatever, right? But somehow he has this idea, right? That that I help people get up in the morning. And I thought, oh, I would love to be remembered for that. That's not bad. Gee, I'd, I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be very happy if uh, someone wrote that to me. So, yeah, <laughs> beautiful. So, yeah, that's it's amazing. You're in this unique role and you are helping people at probably a very, you know, the most important, one of the most important crucial periods of their life. So to, to help others get up in the morning and want to live. Wow. That's um, that must make you, that must lift your spirits. (laughs) It does. But you know what the great thing is, is that they help me get up in the morning because I want to get up in the morning and do this. Yeah, well, that's I guess that's tied to purpose and having that sense of purpose. Exactly. So yes. ikigai, yeah, ikigai really is this multifaceted concept, and um, it is. I just love it. So we <laughs> could um, we could talk a lot about purpose, but we'll we we'll move on to we we'll move on chapter four, and I guess this is where maybe things get a little bit um, confronting. And the title is Learn to Effectively Coexist with Uncertainty, Anxiety, and Fear of Death. And the chapter talks about the fear of death with a diagnosis of serious illness. So what do you learn from learning to effectively coexist with uncertainty and the fear of death? Why should we face fears and and face the fear of death? So there's two things. I'm going to speak to the fear of death first, because the the fear of death is natural, right? It's absolutely natural. We like our life. I'm sure you and I want to wake up tomorrow morning, and we would rather not. So when we get a diagnosis, one of the first things that happens is, like, I wrote my obituary in my head on my way home from work that day, thinking fear of death. But the fear of death is the other side of the desire for life. Mm. This is very Mauritist. And uh, we desire life. But so fear of death is natural. It doesn't have to be fixed. However, 
If the fear of death paralyzes you, then you need to get some professional help to deal with this, to work with this. But the fear of death itself is a natural event like a hurricane or a tornado, right? We're born, we're all going to die. There's no cure for this, right? This is it. Mm. And I love what John Turant says. You might know him. He's from uh, Tasmania, I think, but lives. he's a Zen master. And he says, we're born and we die. And in between, we get to keep each other company. And that's the thing that counts the most. Mm, nice. I love <laughs> that. Yeah. I love it. And so when we're going through difficult times, it or even when we're going through regular times, we need each other. We need company along the way. So one of the things that that we learn about in coexisting with the uncertainty, one of the things that Wellspring Calgary and all kinds of cancer centers offer is company. They offer an opportunity for you to be with other people and to learn and to do things. A downside of some support groups is that it can be very negative and just keep re-stimulating the negativity and the fear. But it doesn't have to be that way. So here's the thing. The good thing about anxiety and uncertainty is that we don't need to fix it. That's the first thing. And we can't fix it. We can't turn it on and off like a light switch. Mm. But to actually learn that we can live with the anxiety, that it's natural, nothing needs to be fixed here. We may not like it. That's a different story. But there's things that we can actually do that will help us coexist with them. And they're almost always some kind of physical thing that we do. And so that's when that other part of learning skills comes in, learning to draw, hiking, right? Taking your going hiking at Wellspring, we have a big hiking program, stretching yourself, learning new things. And my favorite word, arugamama. I have to talk about arugamama <laughs> because arugamama, like it's in my back pocket all the time. It gets me through everything. And because really what it is, is there's no real translation, but roughly translated, I see it as things as they are, mm. things as they are. This is the brutal fact. I've just got diagnosed with cancer. I don't have to like it. I don't have to befriend it. It has nothing to do with that. But this is the way it is. I look at Arugamama as really an acknowledgement of the way things are. Yeah. yeah. I can use the word acceptance. I use active acceptance as well. But the word acceptance you know, is misunderstood because it's considered to be passive or being a doormat or, you know, uh, and it's not that. Arugamama doesn't mean being a doormat. It To me, it really means acknowledging that this is the way it is. My cancer diagnosis, there's nothing I can do about that. But now the second part, the active part of that, that I love is with these things as they are, what can I actually do here? And so I love that. I love it too. And I've I've done a podcast actually on Morita therapy. And the guests essentially said the same thing. It's it's often misunderstood as acceptance, but mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's more like active acceptance, or it's often described by it's an understanding of the true nature of things. 
Yes. And then once you accept or not accept, but once you understand the true nature of things, you are then freeing yourself to take action. I get that. And I like that explanation. However, this is one of the, a sort of an adaptation I made for my Western people is they can understand active and passive. Yes. And so that's why I use that. But my favorite word is acknowledge, right? Acknowledge the way things are. And then what can we do? And this goes right back to the step one, step two, step three. What can we do here? There's so many things that we can do that will allow us to experience, right? Meaning and joy. One of the things that Dr. Itami in particular had his patients do, all of them was to learn drawing skills. Yeah, that was interesting. And once I read and understood why, I thought, wow, I should probably start drawing. So would you like to explain why specifically drawing was an activity he recommended? Yeah, because he had, he recommended all kinds of things, writing haiku, calligraphy, painting, all kinds of things. But drawing was close to his heart because when you think about it, first of all, it's a skill. Everyone can learn how to draw. Secondly. It's focus, you know, to draw, to bring my pencil up and to draw something, you're focusing. So you're really learning to use your attention. Yes. And you, you're not in a state of flow, but you are engaged as you're learning, as you're drawing. It's very good for our brain power. Drawing apparently is one of those skills, like learning a language, that's very good for our cognition and for cultivate it's good brain training in other words and then there's other things after a while you sort of learn how to do it and then maybe you make it on a little postcard a little sketch and you could give it to somebody yeah mm. you know and so then you've got something to give to someone who loves you and it's one of your own little sketches so there's a lot of things and here's the other thing you're very before you start drawing you could be very very anxious about the treatment, about side effects, all kinds of things you're going through. And while you're drawing, it doesn't change or fix or cure anything, but it gives you a mental break. It gives you some relief from all those thoughts that are going through your head. And so that's one of the reasons. And I know we're really out of time here, but but I, I love that. And so I'll tell your listeners that this is something I've recommended for decades and never did myself because I failed art in grade one, right? <laughs> I, <laughs> I was an A student in everything except art. And finally, a year ago, I started taking some lessons just to learn how to draw. And now I have this great joy of drawing and a little bit of painting. And I do discover I'm completely absorbed when I do it. And I don't have to get better. I've given up on getting better. And so I can just enjoy it for mm. the doing's sake. And this is something really quite wonderful and marvelous that I recommend. No, I can definitely relate to that. I, I think I, I like to relate it to just have some form of daily creative expression, whether mm. it's drawing, uh, I play guitar, so I'll, I'll just pick up my guitar and play yes. something. And it does take you away for a few minutes and you forget about all the concerns of life. and. You never know, you might end up making something quite beautiful or drawing something funny or unique. So, 
The other thing that is really important that, that works with this as well is humor. And, you know, people think, how what's funny about cancer? Well, there's actually a whole lot of funny things that happen. It's dark humor. Yeah. But it's <laughs> caution that but, it is dark, but yes, it's you know, part of it's life. Fun. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you one quick story about my mother who just who died at a hundred, healthy in a hundred. When I got diagnosed with cancer, the person I did not want to tell was my mother. I really did not want to tell her. And uh, I needed to tell her. So I finally got my courage up or I didn't get my courage up. I just knew I had to do it. So I called her and she, of course, was devastated and said all the usual things that should have been her. So I said to her, so this is what I need you to do for me. She said, I'll do anything. I said, I need you to find a funny story every day and call me with that story. And she said, Trudy, like, there's nothing funny about cancer. Like, this is ridiculous. I can't find anything funny. (laughs) I said, you know, you can find a funny story. I I talk to people about humor, how important it is. It's even better if it could be personal. So this is my mother. The very next morning, she calls me and she said, Trudy, if I told you once, I told you a hundred times to stop eating that organic food. Now look what's happened. <laughs> and so, you, you know, <laughs> these are the things, right? And But people do say all kinds of crazy things. Again, finding humor is a way of using your attention. You're diverting your attention to looking for something funny to tell other people. Mm. No, I, I agree. Humor is really important uh, just for life in general and having a good time and be, yes. you know, be a little bit self-deprecating and help, <laughs> you know, I guess in Australia we also like to rib and, and make fun of our good friends, but it's it's healthy and it's, it's good it's to laugh. It's healthy. Yeah. You know, and Dr. Itami, and it says it boosts your immune system. This was speculative and anecdotal for years with people, but uh, it's looking more and more like that is really the case. It does give a little boost to our immune system. And why not? (laughs) Why not? Indeed. So let's move on to chapter five then. And that is acknowledge death as a natural event and prepare constructively. So that's sort of touching on Arugamama again That. Uh, yes, it is. The true nature of things. We will eventually die. Yes. And two sentences that struck me was in your book was death creates a dilemma for us. We know that 100% of all living beings will die, but it is hard to believe that today I might die. And this reminded me of something my brother told me. He had a friend who died of cancer and his friend told my brother sort of during the final weeks that despite knowing he was dying and had days to live, he expected that he would just be waking up the next morning and the morning after that. And he really found it hard to believe he was going to die because he just thought, I I really think I'm going to wake up the next morning and the next morning. And yeah, that, that got me thinking. So do you think we should spend more time contemplating death because I guess it's only something we do when maybe we're told oh, you've got this illness and I'm sorry to say you, you've you got a limited um, amount of time now. No, if we were in a Zendo, we would be spending a lot of time thinking about, right, death. And uh, because we're all going to die. But the, here's the thing. When you acknowledge death as a reality, 
and you prepare for it constructively, this is not because you're ill. It's because we're human beings. But when you get a diagnosis of a serious illness, you're getting like a warning sign, right? Like the warning a hurricane's coming. If something could happen here, you are mortal. And if, and it's also different, Nick, for somebody who is diagnosed with a really a terminal illness and they've got three weeks to live. Uh, one of my cousins had pancreatic cancer and died in the hospital three weeks later from the time of diagnosis. So a lot of scrambling was done with legal papers in that hospital bed at the end. So preparing for our death constructively is because we are human beings and we don't know when we're going to die. If we get hit by a bus or we have an accident, all kinds of things can happen. And preparing constructively means that we get our affairs in order, all of us, and we get our list of passwords in now, right? Because people are, we're all, we're digital. Mm. So somebody needs to have all those passwords to be able to do what they need to do. And there may be letters that we want to write to people, final words that we want to give to a child or grandchild or a spouse or a good friend or stories. There's many things we can do to prepare for our death and get that little sort of package ready. And then because we're going to die, we're mortal. Then what we do is take that energy and use it to live as fully and well as we can. So I don't go around thinking that I'm going to die tonight. I don't anticipate dying tonight. I think you and I will meet again. It may not be true, <laughs> right? I have but, so, yeah. But, but we do. But we do. And so we use it not to scare ourselves, but we use it to pr give ourselves a prompt to really live, to not put our life on hold, to not put off the important things that we want to do because we don't know when that last day is. So it's really a recipe to live fully, to mm. do those things now and not postpone them. Yeah, you have this great phrase of uh, live with outstretched arms. Yes. I love this idea. But I also like the idea that we can do things um, like legacy letters. So we, yes. we often, as you said, we often take care of the legal things. We'll make sure our will's in order and we will do all these things because I guess we realise we have to. But we can do these other things where you could certainly write letters to the people that matter to you and ex yes. express things that are important. That's something I actually did. This is sort of the, the, the opposite way, but when my father was sick and, I mean, he had cancer for about a year, but I, I mm -hmm. at his age and with his health, he had other health issues. I knew I knew there was a good chance he, he wouldn't be around for long. And we had a, a sort of a, a complicated um, past with um, divorce and my, my sort of mum left him and took us when I was eight and I, I only saw him a, few, a handful of times after that until we reconnected. But I, I wrote him a letter thanking him for everything he'd done mm. on his 80th birthday and communicated in a way to him that I knew he would be comfortable. And, yeah, writing that letter and just saying all the things I wanted to say 
And this, I mean, this was sort of well before he got really sick. Mm-hmm. But, it, yeah, it was really important for me to to say those things and, you know, I would have been filled with much regret if I hadn't expressed um, everything in that letter. And I think that's really important that whether you're the one with the illness or you're a, a family member or friend of someone who has the illness, that you you say everything you want to say or, or express it. I, I wouldn't yes. have been able to say it to him directly. He probably would have struggled to handle that sort of direct <laughs> intimacy. But yeah. through a letter, it was very meaningful for him. Yeah. A letter's, that's a, such a wonderful, wonderful story. And so vitally important that, you know, so often we wait till someone dies and then we speak publicly about all the nice things we liked about them. I, I did a little webinar, I called it Splurge with Words, because I, I really like to encourage people, you know, if you love someone, if you admire them, if you're grateful to someone for something, tell them now while they're yeah. alive. Even if you think it makes you look a little bit silly, who cares, right? Absolutely. Really, just do it. Just jump in there and do it. So that letter that you wrote, this is the greatest gift you could give somebody that they got to read the letter. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, this is something I, I guess the one thing I'm would encourage people to do is yeah, communicate something. Uh, I mean, for me, as you know, both my parents died and I, I was very active in my mum's um, illness and she, she loved being with people. She loved music. She used to take me to concerts and opera and all these things. And so I just had this idea we would we'd have a party and we would hire a string quartet and have them play in the garden and just have her friends casually pop in and sort of did that, I guess, maybe a couple of months before she died. And she was, I mean, she was quite sick, but it was a beautiful day and her friends sort of popped in and, she was able to sort of be up and about for most of it. And yeah, it was just a, a, a way to, to thank her. So I think there are ways you can find to thank people and you, you find a way that's comfortable to that person. So mm-hmm. it might be with the case of my father, it was a letter. If I said, let's have a party or something, he wouldn't have liked that. But for my mom, no. getting her friends together and, having music and good food was, was one day, mm-hmm. one way to do that. So, yeah, I think it's important we express ourselves. You know, I don't know if you've listened to the uh, or the, read the research out of Harvard. It's over about 80 years now uh, where they did the research of what matters most. In, did you listen to that? No, TikTok? I haven't. No. You haven't. And in the end, across all social status, income, success, the thing that counts the most at the end of life are our relationships. And so I do encourage people to mend their fences if they can. There may be relationships that are so fractured that you couldn't mend them because the other person wouldn't want to or could even make it worse. There's no formula. But if you do have some relationships that could be mended, it's, it's good to Take the opportunity while we can to do that. That's not a key guy. That's just something that I yeah, yeah. think is I agree. 
is important yes. to do. Yeah, so it it goes <laughs> it goes deep. That's an <laughs> illness and cancer and this element of icky guys is quite quite helpful. And there are so many things. I mean, I wrote so many notes from your book and just these little expressions of, you know, say yes to life or live with outstretched arms. Could we talk about that for a moment? Outstretched sure. arms? Yeah, partly, partly, yeah. <laughs> partly what that is, is if you think about your life uh, and think about things that you did that where you took a risk that turned out. I'm not talking about recklessness, but where you took a risk, right? You stepped up and took a risk. Either you could be embarrassed, you might have some financial loss or whatever it was. But one of the things that can happen as we go along and get comfortable is that we stop taking risks. And so living with outstretched arms is being willing to take a risk now and then to stretch ourselves, to do something like my bike trip that I did around the Cabot Trail when I was not, you know, it, I risked being humiliated like the very slowest person on that bike trip or hurting myself or whatever. When we put ourselves out there, we're risking criticism. When we write any kind of a book, big or small, we risk criticism. We risk people who won't like it, people who will like it. So I think that living with outstretched arms is that you, you're willing to put yourself out there, to be who you are, to take whatever kinds of calculated risks mean something to you. You don't just wait until somehow conditions are perfect. Yes. If you really, really wanted to take that trip to Japan, do everything you can to be able to take that trip. And uh Climb Mount Fuji if you want, whatever it is, you know, I, uh, so that's kind of what I mean is mm. not holding back, not being reckless, but not holding back. We do hold back and it's, it's unfortunate. We, we think we have to save special things or the things we really want to do for a time later, like when I'm right. ready or when I've done this or, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy of it or I haven't earned yes. the right or all that, all that nonsense. So you also write, you know, let's strive for being as alive as possible until our last breath. And so, yeah, it doesn't mean we're always having to find something to do and, um, or be reckless. It's, I guess it's relates to this next chapter and it's living a present centered life. And the chapter title is empowering actions we can take and living fully with illness is a present centered um, methodology, I guess, to be active and try new things. And trying new things is very much aligned to Ikigai. And there's actually mm -hmm. a psychometric tool called the Ikigai 9 that recommends or suggests that if you try new things or do something new, you're going to have this sense of ikigai. So yeah. what are actions you recommend that we can do for a, a present-centered life? Well, I would say uh, it depends on the person. But for sure, for me, it's allowing yourself to be a beginner, right? It's one of the things. To learn new things, you need to be willing to be a beginner, to not be good at it. And so 
this is something that in our culture we struggle with because we want to do a one weekend and workshop and be really good at it. <laughs> and if we're not, we think, well, what's wrong with that? Or what's wrong with me? Right. One or the other, but it's, it's really all those various things about um, in the creative arts, hobbies, learning a language, changing a job, right? Oftentimes a career move happens after you have had a serious illness because you start reflecting on what matters most and you realize that what you're doing, you're doing for a particular purpose to advance, succeed, and to earn a lot of money. But in fact, it's not satisfying. And you really, Mm -hmm. really wanted to do something different. And now you could take that chance and do something different and glean a whole lot of meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment from doing that. You know, it's uh, there, it's not it's not a formula, Nick. It's really very individual, and it's really trying anything new, right? It's it's going on a hike maybe for the first time. You've never been on a hike. You've walked, but you've never been on a hike. But you've always kind of thought you might want to. You know, it's uh, I did a five day walking trip in Japan a few years back, and like I loved it. I want to go back. COVID has kind of prevented that, but, yeah. but, but it could be a language you, you say, people say things like hear yourself. What are you saying? Well, one day I'd like to learn to cook, right? I'd like to learn how to cook Italian food or Japanese food or Indian food, but they just stay as something you'd like to do. You don't sure, actually yeah. do it. So I'm trying to say, translate the idea into action and be okay at not being the best. Yeah. This is fantastic advice. It's something I've embraced in my life where I'll just think, well, I'll just start, I'll just try. And often I'll just share it with people to say, oh, I'm going to learn the shakuhachi and I'll I'll get a shakuhachi and I'll book a lesson and then start. And then I, I don't really care how quickly I'm going to progress. I just get started. Yes. And you never know what's starting something can lead to you know it's starting, true yeah, starting this podcast yes two years ago has led to me connecting with so many amazing people and I, I really had no idea where it would take me so I think that's great advice and you have this advice of energize yourself in 15 minute bursts and there's a story attached to this one with your your grandson yes, Rowan yes. and his his piano so would you like to share that story sure so my grandson takes piano lessons loves piano and this was a few years ago i can't remember how old he was at the time but we are on our way to the piano lesson and i'm the piano and music music and math coach in the family so i take wow. him to math and music <laughs> and uh so we're driving there. I say, Rowan, what's troubling you? He said, oh, he said, I feel so embarrassed. He said, you know, to go and see Garrett, his teacher. He said, I haven't really practiced much. And he said, I feel badly. I feel like I'm embarrassed. And I said, well, do you think there's something you could do so that you're not embarrassed the next time? He said, yes, I could start, like I could, you know, practice an hour, maybe two times a week or something like this. And I said, well, what about if you took on the 15 minute rule? What's that? 
And I said, 15 minutes a day. That's all. Just 15 minutes a day. If you end up missing a day, you've still gotten six days of 15 minutes. Because if you're doing it one hour twice a week and you miss that day, you're out of luck. So he started that. And honestly, it transformed his piano and it transformed his joy of going to piano because he felt he wasn't letting down his teacher. He was having fun and 15 minutes was doable before school each day. And so I've used that for all kinds of things myself because I was trying to do something. He said, well, Nana, why don't you use your own rule 15 minutes a day? And uh, (laughs) that's the problem, right? (laughs) When you blab away to your grandkids what you do and then they know right away what advice to give you. (laughs) So it's a way and people can do it because we can almost always find 15 minutes to do something. I think that a lot of the language teachers even suggest that now. They might even say five minutes. If you want to write the book, don't wait until you're retired, right? Like don't wait until your summer holiday and you've got this big space of time. 15 minutes a day you're going to get a lot of words written in a year if you actually write 15 minutes a day. But basically what you're doing is creating the habit of writing. And the more you do it, the more you're going to write. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a very effective approach. I do it with exercise and I I use something called Tabata. What's that? It's a Japanese um, inspired training program where you, it's actually, you warm up and then you do intense exercise for four minutes, actually. So it's, it'll be something like 20, you warm up and obviously be careful. Mm -hmm. And then you might get on a stationary bike or you might um, skip or, Mm -hmm. but you do it for 20 seconds as fast as you can and then stop mm-hmm. for 10 seconds and do that eight times. So it's it's eight sets of just doing very intense exercise for 20 seconds mm-hmm. and then 10 second break. And yeah, by the time I do it, you know, I'm heaving, I'm sweating, I'm, but it's something I'll do maybe just three times in a workout yes. session and I feel great. I'm done. Um, I'll, if I'm, I've got the shakuhachi, I'll often pick that up and just play that. Not even for fifteen, maybe just ten. And it's yeah, exactly. It's amazing what what happens after a couple of days or a couple of weeks. You're you're making progress, mm-hmm. and and sometimes yeah, you'll end up doing half an hour or right. So it's yeah, it's that habit. It's the habit, right? It's just because it's so easy to not do things. It is. It and really this, is. This leads to <laughs> this sort of leads appropriately to the final chapter. You can do it, and this, I guess, applies to to many things. Mm-hmm. But you had this interesting incident. Uh, I'll I'll share with the audience that a student of yours, I think, yes, came to you and said. Obviously, she found out you had been diagnosed with cancer, and she said. I'm glad that it is you who got cancer rather than someone else, <laughs> which, yeah, would be quite a <laughs> shocking thing to, to hear. But would you like to explain what um, she meant? I would love to, because it was startling. There's no question about it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
So I'm looking at her and she's smiling at me. And uh, I think I probably said, so, so why is that? And she said, because Trudy, you've got some skills to deal with it. You've got something that will help you go through that. And a lot of people don't have anything. They're lost when they're diagnosed with a serious illness and they don't have what you've got. And I thought, honestly, I'm so lucky. I am so lucky that I've been teaching this material for years, that I know Morita therapy, that I know Ikigai and Arugamama and Dr. Itami. And I have this great wealth of resources that I can call on. And it doesn't mean that I didn't write my obituary and weep and be anxious and worried just like everybody else. But I knew that it would pass because all feelings pass, right? And I knew that I had things that I could do, like writing my blog every single day while I had cancer. That was something I could do. And uh, and so there's, so I, can I just say one more little thing? Sure, sure. sure. Okay. Because that leads me to think of three extremely important words. And those three words are, I get to, I get to. Not, I have to go Mm. to chemo today. I get to go to chemo today. Not, I have to go for that PET scan. I get to go. And the reason this is so important is because I have to do these awful things is heavy. It's distressing. But when you flip it and say, I get to, you're not being Pollyannish. It's as simple as this, Nick. When I was about to have my very last treatment, 18 months later, after I was diagnosed, uh, an in-law of mine was diagnosed with a terminal cancer, and there was no treatment for him. And honestly, he would have given his right arm if there was treatment, and there wasn't. And all of a sudden, it struck me. How lucky was I that I actually had treatment? Yes. I really had treatment for my cancer. He does not. There are lots of people who have illnesses that don't have a treatment for it. And so as I thought about that, I thought about many different things. I thought about my father who actually had both legs amputated because of serious diabetes One night when my dishwasher was broken after a party and I was standing at the sink washing all these dishes and my partner said to me, like, you should get your kids to do this. (laughs) And I said, oh, I'm doing it in honor of my father, basically. He said, what do you mean? I said, my father would have given anything to be standing on two strong legs at this sink washing these dishes. And so I think about, I get to all the time, like I get to, I don't know, I get to drive my grandson to school or I, I get to make dinner. I'm able to do it. Yes. This is a wonderful thing to be able to do something. So I try and replace that idea of if I say, oh God, I've got it. I have to take my car to the end to get fixed. Well, I actually have a car and I have a place to go and get it fixed who are trustworthy, right? Yes, it's it's coming from this place of immense gratitude. You know, we're, 
we're extremely fortunate to be born and, and living in the countries we're from. We are. And we, we have so much to be grateful for. This is something um, Greg mentioned on, yes. on the podcast and uh, also another guest on my podcast just said we, we have it so lucky. We're so lucky to be do. where we are in life and where we're born and we have everything we need to succeed was this um, Paul, Paul Akers, this man's statement that we're so lucky. Everything has been basically prepared for us to have a good life and succeed. And if we mm-hmm. don't wake up with a, a sense of immense gratitude, <laughs> there's clearly something wrong. So, yeah. And I'd, um, like to, I'd like to add that does not detract at all from the pain and suffering mm. that people go through. That also is true. But when we can shine that flashlight of our attention onto all the help we get and all the resources we have, it really moves us completely away from the victim mentality. Yeah. yeah. And that's vitally important, you know, that because when we can understand our good fortune, then we know that there's things that we can do. And not everyone gets to do those things. No, that's thank you for saying that. And it's it also highlights how we do have amazing people around us, whether it's family or friends or mm-hmm. carers. And both my my mum had a lot of friends who cared about her and, and helped and helped help me and my brother. And with my father specifically was his wife, my, my stepmom, who she spent every day of his illness doing everything she could to to look after him and yeah, I'll be forever grateful for her. And may I say one last thing? You can cut all this out, by the way. No, I'm not going to cut out anything. <laughs> I just want to say this. It's a little African proverb, which I love. And I always talk about it when I talk about Arugamama. And it goes like this. When the music changes, so must the dance. Mm. When the music changes, so must the dance. So there's two things I love about that. There's music and there's dance, but it also, it's this, when we get diagnosed with a serious illness, oftentimes we can't do everything we used to do. That music has changed. We go from a fast paced dance to a slow waltz, right? The music has changed. We don't get to run the marathon anymore. We might still be able to walk. And what I love is, when the music changes, so must the dance. There's still music, which is life, and there's still movement, which is the dance. We don't get to do necessarily what we really want it to do or used to do, but there's still things we can do. And I sort of see that as tying in with the Arugamama, that acknowledging that this awful thing has happened. It's true. That's true. Things have changed. But yet, there's things that we can do here. Mm. Oh, that's that makes sense to me, and I, I think, yeah, no matter what we're going through, we we can do something, and we mm-hmm. we can certainly contribute to others. And I, I'm I'm going back to that statement or that comment that student said to you. Um, I'm glad mm-hmm. that it is you who got cancer rather than someone else. You you kind of described 
people who perhaps say things like this and remind us of these things, mm-hmm. they're tough angels. They are. <laughs> so, <laughs> they so I love are. That. I love that idea too, that there are people in life who will point out or remind us that, hey, mm-hmm. you know, you can handle it or, um, okay, yeah, life's hard, but you yes. can do it. Um, you can do it. So people, yeah, people will believe in you and they mm-hmm. they know you and they know you can, I don't want to say get through things, but they know you can handle it in a way that's meaningful and right for you. So this has been a very enjoyable conversation, Trudy, and I, I do have a few more questions. You, okay. you seem to have many sources of Ikigai, plenty to live for. So would you like to share what they are? Sure. I have a lot, so but I will tell you <laughs> all of them, okay? For sure, this work that I do, I completely love it, and I got so excited listening to some of your interviews, I didn't know that you were there, Nick. Oh. So I'm I'm so glad to know this because you're a wealth of information and kindness and generosity and, and the people you're interviewing. It's so, they're so interesting to listen to. And I, it's expanded my view of Ikigai. So I'm very, very grateful for that. And I, my grandchildren, The reason I'm in Ottawa is because of my grandchildren. I decided that I really wanted to be able to get to know them in their everyday lives. And the only way I could do that was to come. And that was a bittersweet decision because it required me to leave Wellspring, which I was passionate about and couldn't imagine myself not there. But here I am there. I go every week on Zoom. (laughs) So... I'm in Ottawa with my grandchildren, and I still get to go to Wellspring. But things like poetry, poetry is of great solace to me. And one of my guys is introducing people who don't like poetry to poetry. And I can find poems that people love who claim they don't like it. And so I, I, I consider that one of my little mm. guys. Nice. And I use guy every webinar I start with a poem. And uh, and photography and cycling and nature, flowers and trees and the vista of the sky, right? I love so much about Japan, Nick. I have to give you two examples. The fact that in Japan, people do moon viewing. Now, uh-huh. how wonderful is that? They get together and they look at the full moon and they might read or write haiku about this experience the fact that there is a flower in japan it's a type of chrysanthemum that has such a beautiful fragrance that it's protected so that future generations will have the luxury of being able to experience that fragrance the way they care for nature there's so many things that i have learned and benefited from japan Mm. from Dr. Itami, from Yoshie, from all my Japanese friends and the culture itself. And uh, I just feel like I have been so lucky to be able to do, do that. And, and so there's lots of things. I'm, I'm interested in so many things <laughs> that they're all sort of part of my ikigai. Mm. Life is my ikigai. Mm. <laughs> well, you, you highlight an important point and there's this 
sort of misconception that ikigai is, you know, one big thing, but mm-hmm. it's you can have many ikigai. Um, yes. Ken, Ken Moggy writes he has easily can identify a hundred sources of ikigai. Yes. So we can have yeah, we can have hundreds and they can be small things and fun things and meaningful things. But that, that yes. idea of um, great appreciation for, for nature or appreciation for beauty or excellence, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's something very typical of um, Japanese culture. They, they do find things and they end up creating words to describe um, yes. these things that we often don't notice or fully appreciate, I guess. So... I'm sure many people would love to reach out to you and, and contact you. So your, your website is livingwellwithillness.com. Yes, so that's yes. livingwellwithillness.com. Or they could just uh, Google your name, um, yes. Trudy Boyle, and they'll find you. And I do recommend your book, Ikigai and Illness, A Guide to Living Fully with Purpose, Meaning and Joyful Moments. And it's it's a small read, but it's packed full of wisdom and, as you can see from the notes I made. So it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you, Trudy. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Nick. I really appreciate it, the invitation, and I'm so glad that I got to see what you're doing and just be part of this for a bit. Thank you. Thank you, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk again or, who knows, maybe we'll even meet in person. We might. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This episode was brought to you by the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. To learn more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com.